Well, I planned this sermon before I know we were, knew we were going to have a few little special guests. And so I'm not sure if it's good that they're here or bad. But I, I, I like to say that, you know, two, my, my nieces and nephews are here. Some of them are. And the two little ones, Emmett and Desiree, you know, they're the little guys, right? And uh, I like to think I'm their favorite uncle. <laughs> it's probably pretty unlikely, but I keep telling myself that, and I just don't want anyone to tell me different, you know? So uh, when I go babysit said children, of which I'm their favorite, I'm sure, it's really quite, quite a thing, you know? It's like, all right, kids, what do we do? You know, all right, well, let's watch children's shows all day. You know, I don't know what to do. So, you know, I'm not really a thing on babysitting. I'm not really much of an expert. Well, you know, they usually come out on the other end alive, and they haven't starved to death, so we're, we're good there. Well, let me tell you about one of the worst experiences, most frightful experiences of my life actually also had to do with small children, and it was kindergartners. I got, was working at Sunrise, and I was living with the basketball team, that was great. I'm gr- they're grown up, no problem. Basketball, we had this wonderful, great connection. But they needed a substitute for the kindergarten PE class once a week. Oh, man, that was terrible. I go into that PE class, and it's like, what do kindergartners do? You're like, Quit talking. You're going to have to do push-ups. It's like, oh, wait, no, that's not going to work. Okay, no, we cannot run sprints. Um, how do you get a kindergartner to be quiet? I was, it was awful. It was, they learned nothing, let me tell you. I'm glad they all got out of there okay. But that was the epitome of things not being done decently and in order. Let me tell you, it was just pretty much chaos. And today we are going to talk about how the Bible talks about how we should be doing things decently and in order. And uh, I think we're going to find it has a different picture than what we had at my kindergarten class. So we're going to go ahead and start, continue on in chapter 14, verse 13. It says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. This continues on from last time. Really, if you really wanted to try to do the subject matter correctly, you'd probably want to do like chapter 13 and 14 all together. But chapter 14 has 40 verses. So just even reading all of chapter 13 and 14 would take a while, so I broke it up, but it, um, some of the main themes I've already hit on, I'm not going to talk about again because I've, I've already kind of said them um, because they kind of flow throughout both chapters. Um, so we go on to verse 14. It says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit pray, prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So he's once again stressing the importance of understanding, saying he had talked about tongues, and he's contrasting the tongues versus prophecy and whatnot, and he's once again emphasizing this idea of we need to have understanding with our mind. This is why when we pick lyrics and stuff for songs, it is very, very challenging. Let me tell you all the challenges we have with lyrics. Hymns are written by a myriad of people, and if we went through the theology of hymns carefully, it would likely depress you that they are so, they vary greatly. They vary greatly. So what's the song, uh, how does it go? Uh, a double cure, the one that has, says uh, something, something, a double cure. 
I think it's one of the verses that come now found. It says, a double cure. Does any of you know what a double cure is? You've sang it a hundred times. Do you believe that when Christ died, there was a double cure? I don't, okay? But most of us don't even know what it is. And you may or you may not agree with it, but most of us don't know. And if you really dig into the theology of the hymns, they're written by a number of people. So people that did believe in eternal security, people that didn't believe in eternal security. And there's definitely things that they say that might go one way or the other. So that's a challenge. You can't just take all you know, 900 hymns of the hymn book and say, oh, they're all perfect in their theology. So then you get more modern songs and they have all their own challenges. So you're sitting down and you're thinking, I am going to write a song that's going to end up being sung by people in churches. So what is your criteria going to be? Okay, so I'm going to say we're going to be super optimistic about this and say, I want it to be biblically accurate. Okay, we're going to assume that's true. Then you're going to go, well, if I make this too theologically specific, then I'm going to cut off a large portion of my audience who will ever sing this. The hymns have somehow been grandfathered in. They just, they just get in anyway. They've, they're, they're, they, they get to pass all those tests because they've been around so long. But the new ones, if there was a new song that came out that, for example, said something like, and I'm speaking in tongues, guess who's going to sing that song? Only the people that believe in speaking in tongues and all the rest of Christianity is not going to sing that song. So you're a songwriter, and you would like your song to be sung by the most people possible, what do you end up tending to do? Even if you're not like, this isn't like your main goal, you are going to gravitate toward simpler lyrics. You're going to gravitate towards simpler lyrics because you do not want to alienate a big part of your audience. So a lot of the words of the new songs are very good. I think they're fine. I, I'm sure not all of them are good, but I think there are, a lot of them are very good. But the writers of those I know are constantly challenged by trying to come up with more detailed lyrics because they know they will be scrutinized. And you know how they get around it sometimes? Put a new tune to an old hymn. The old hymn lyrics are good to go. does not matter. Those are going to be accepted by everybody no matter what. So you put a new tune to it, and you can have more theologically depthful lyrics because a lot of the old hymns are and you don't have to worry about the theological controversy because those have already been accepted, all right? So I say all this to say, when we want to sing with our mind, it's important to have proper lyrics, and it's also a challenge always as a song leader, as someone who leads music, to always try to find the best lyrics you possibly can that you think are the most impactful and in-depthful, yet also accurate. It, I'm just saying it's challenging. It's, it's not as easy as you would like to think. Some songwriters actually write their own lyrics. So some churches, their song person might you know, write their own songs that are specific to their song uh, churches, and that can somehow at times be a way to help. But not everybody just has a bunch of people who are writing their own songs, and so uh, it can be a challenge. But I do think it is important as we go to pray with our mind. So for example, one song I really don't like is Open the Eyes of My Heart. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you, I want to see you, to see you high and lifted up. Okay, I'm probably way too literal. 
Okay, I'm probably, I'm probably ruining this for myself. I'm opening the eyes of my heart to see you shining in the light of your glory. I'm seeing you high and lifted up. How, what does opening the eyes of my heart mean, and how do I see you with it, and I'm just super confused? Now, it's probably super metaphorical, so it's like someone in here's favorite song, and I've just like made an enemy, probably, okay? But I've always never liked that song, because when I sung it, I could not understand what in the world it was saying. And then I got to be, you know, I, my younger days, I was a little more rude, you know, so I, I went around, I went around and did a survey. This is when I was in college. You got to do these things when you're young, because then you can just blame it on youth. You know, at some point you got you got to quit blaming it on your youth. But I went around and did a survey. What do you think the words of the song "Open the Eyes of My Heart" mean? What do you think the song words of the song "Open the Eyes of My Heart" mean? I I got through about five people, and guess how many different answers I got? Five different answers. I clearly was on a bit of a crusade to say the song was bad because I didn't like it, so maybe I was a little overly harsh, okay? But this is a difficulty we must come up with to try to, I think we do need to evaluate songs. And Open the Eyes of My Heart probably isn't one of the worst offenders, but it was kind of an easy one for me to bring up. We need to be careful about what we're singing. We need to sing with our mind. So there is an emotional aspect to worship, but there's also an intellectual aspect, and we need to have both of those going on at the same time. We need to have understanding. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? And I think this is the verse that is the reason churches have always tended to say amen, and some, amen, and some churches have uh, avoided clapping. We amen, we don't clap. I don't, you know, we're not, we don't have that here, but if you've ever been to a church that didn't allow clapping, maybe no one's ever been to that kind of church, but I've been to one, no clapping, all right? And we say amen, we don't clap. <laughs> totally off. This is, the, this is the hilarious. We don't clap because we don't want to give praise to God, we want to give praise to men. This is what I was told. Amen's in the Bible, that's true. It says, you know, kind of says, say amen. So I'm, I'm totally fine with amen, I'm not... I'm not knocking any either way. So we don't clap because we don't give praise to men. We, we say amen. A guy goes up and plays a piano piece for special music. Let's just say it doesn't go well for him. It's a little rough. Having struggles. Should have spent a few more minutes on that thing. Gets done with it. He walks down. A lot of quiet. A lot of quiet going on. And the guy next to me says, oh, I feel so bad for him. He didn't get any amens. Wait a second. I thought the reason we didn't clap was because we don't give praise to men. But if the guy isn't good enough, we don't give him as many amens. But if he does better, we give him more. What is the difference? I, did, I just could not figure out what the difference was. Okay? I, I, I'm not sure. All right? So I, I'm a little... I think both are fine, all right? You, do, you, you, know, you, you know what's in your heart when you're clapping or you're saying amen, and I'm not sure that there is a particular right or wrong way of doing that. We go to 17. It says, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Once again, talking, continuing to talk about this important of doing things with understanding. 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul, he spoke in tongues. 
He was doing it. He said it was important. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct the others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's really nailing this home, okay? I'm hoping you're getting the idea here. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So he wants them to be mature in their thinking, right? This understanding. And then he makes this comment, but you want to be infants in evil. Infants in evil. And I think sometimes it's just okay not to know very much about the bad things. You know, it's okay to not know very much about the bad things. So if you've never heard of that singer, you've never heard of that movie or whatever, it's, it's okay. Like, it's, it's maybe not needed to be super well-versed in all things of the world. And sometimes we might feel, oh, I don't know who this person is. You know, and I feel socially a little bit awkward because I don't, I'm not familiar with them or the, that show or whatever. Being, being a, a little bit of an infant and ignorant and evil is just isn't such a bad thing. Verse 21, in the law it is written by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign for believe, uh, not for believers but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Quoting of the Old Testament and the New, super hard. I'm not going to go into trying to figure out in what way they were using the Old Testament at that point. Verse 22 Thus tongues are a sign not for unbelievers, oh, believers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So he's emphasizing here the importance of understanding. And when, pe- when someone new comes in, they want to be able to understand what's going on and not have it seems like it's craziness. And though some that have emphasized speaking in tons of the spiritual gift really sort of shot them. You know, we all do this, right? We, we, we shoot ourselves in the foot. And, and so if you go to a service in which tongues is sort of taken over, you become an easy target for those who are trying to discredit tongues in all situations. Because all they have to do is go, well, that's obviously not what's here in 1 Corinthians 14, so then I'm going to discredit everything you might say about tongues. Does that make sense? If you let tongues become something that is clearly not allowed here, we're going to go in more about interpretation. You're not doing that. So the the charismatic movement, or whatever you call it, has like three waves. I can't remember if I've mentioned this before. The first one is more like the Pentecostal movement. That's like denominations, so the Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God, that's the first wave. The second wave is like the charismatic wave. That is more like you can have a charismatic Baptist or a charismatic Catholic or a charismatic Methodist or whatever. That just means that someone of a already established denomination started believing in speaking in tongues and other sign gifts or whatever. And then there was a group called the Third Wave, and what the third wave did, they became like a more, a much more um, measured group, okay? So Pentecostals and maybe some Charismatics sort of got really pigeonholed as eccentric, 
Okay, whether that's fair or not, that's kind of what became the stereotype, eccentric, right? Like they're running around, you know, whatever, not having order in their service, okay? And then the third wave became much more, um, we're going to have an interpreter, you know, we don't make it the main focus of our service and things like that, all right? And they, they kind of sort of took their critiques that people had of some of these other waves and they modified them as well. Now, if you're a part of any of these waves, you're welcome to you know, think of it however you would like, but that's kind of historically how it's gone. And you can see why this third wave may have developed when they got frustrated with saying, maybe some of us have gone too far in, in this. In, in the same way, you know, going too far, I mean, you know, to, to say only they have done it is obviously ridiculous. If we wanted to say what other things we've done where we've overemphasized it's not very hard to come up with examples. We go on to 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So then when he's talking about how to do the service, and he's emphasizing doing your mind and saying, you know, don't make tongues so important, he makes this statement that has actually created sort of division within Christianity, small division, with how a church service should even go. Okay, so how should a church service go? What should you do in a church service? Well, almost everyone I've ever been to, you come, you sing songs, you have some kind of offering, whether it's you pass a plate or you have it in the back or whatever your method of is taking offering, you have a sermon and you have communion or, or you know, some, maybe not every time, but at some point you have communion and, you know, People do it in various orders, and maybe communion is done less or more. Maybe the sermon's shorter. You know, if you get really crazy, you put the sermon at the beginning. You know, all there, there's just but basically every single one is like the same, right? They're they're all the same from a very bird's eye view, right? They're, they feel the same. There are some people, the Brethren Church, that do not do services like that at all. They don't have a preacher. So they get together like this, and I, I'm, I've never been in one, so I don't want to, I might be a little bit mischaracterizing how they do it, but they might go, oh, bud, did you, you had a song? Okay, let's all sing it. Oh, Pat, you, you had something to say? You just, you stand up and you talk, you know? And you just basically have this sort of open forum in which different people take turns saying stuff. And then you do that for however long, and then you go home. And the reason they do that is because in this verse 26, one of the primary reasons they say, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done building up. So they take that to say, this is exactly how our services should go. And so they try to emulate that by having everyone taking a turn. And when I first heard of them, I thought they... That sounded very weird, and I suppose it sort of sounds weird a little bit, but when you read this verse, it's not quite as weird, right? It's, it's, you can see why they get this, but the Bible also says things like you should not have many teachers, right? And it seems like the pastor should be um, someone who's able to teach. So it seems to be that not just everyone is sort of on equal playing ground and all this. So it also seems, you kind of balance some of the things out, it makes sense that maybe uh, you have certain people do more of the speaking than the others and not just uh, let, it, let it be a sort of free-for-all. Um, but it also could mean that sometimes 
we get the idea that maybe only the preacher can preach. I don't think that's the case here, but you know, we maybe there, there are times in church history where oh, only this person can speak, and it seems like that would not be true, right? And certainly in like things like Sunday schools and Bible studies, we, we, we kind of do that more group approach to it anyway already, all right? So that's uh, a few things about that. So I think that one thing that is important to get out of this idea is we all have something to add to the worship together. And so maybe you don't do anything special like on the Sunday morning from this one hour. Maybe it's you contribute to a Sunday school class or maybe your contribution is in some kind of other Bible study setting or whatnot. But it does seem like that the contribution to the spiritual building of each other up is not just like isolated to like one or two people at certain times. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. So this is the reason the third wave got big on the interpreting. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. That's also a very interesting thing. The others weigh what he said. Does that mean that I should preach a sermon and everybody should tell me what I did wrong at the end? Uh, um, let's just send me an email. You know, that's, that's my vote for that one, okay? First, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. So I'm not exactly sure what was going on there. They obviously knew what was going on. And it seems like it must have been fairly chaotic. Lots of things going on at the same time, and it was monstrously confusing. So not only was the tongues thing confusing, but he's like trying to be like, take turns. Take turns, like one at a time. Verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The woman should keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but should also be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And so here's another one of the passages that traditionally, uh, traditionally not within the last hundred years, but going further back, women have not allowed to have been pastors or preachers. And so you say, well, how do you look at this? Obviously, um, Nowadays, we have um, women that have been preachers. When I say nowadays, it reaches much further back than just today. You know, as we, uh, Rhoda's mother was a, a preacher uh, back, uh, so Rhoda is like 42, and so her mother is, uh, you know, it reaches back a little ways. And so, so uh, anyway, uh, when I say traditionally, I mean a little bit further back. And you say, so how do you handle this? It seems to be pretty clear. Well, if you would want to argue that women can be preachers, you might say, in this particular church, they're having this particular problem, and it is the way he is solving their individual issue is by saying the women in that church can't speak because they're having so much chaos. So it is a isolated solution to their individual problem, not a thing that is a universal rule forever. Okay? Some people agree with that. Some people don't. But that would be one way you look at it. Another way you could look at it, if you're pro-women can't be pastors or something like that, you'd read, it says women can't speak at church, and therefore women can't speak in church. Okay? So there's you know, a couple different ways to look at that. 
And so that is why there is traditionally, the men have done the speaking. As a matter of fact, probably in our church, the, I, don't, I don't think there's a rule, but ever since I've been here, it's always been men that serve communion. And I'm assuming that's not a hard and fast rule here, or anything like that. But the reason that probably developed is because this sort of traditional, uh, the, the way it's been, that the men have been the ones that take the leadership role. So I'm not going to solve that issue. We talked about it way back when, early on when I did 1 Timothy 3 as well. So I'm going to leave it there. You are welcome to take that however you want. I mean, the, the cultural view, oh, sick, yeah. I say I'm going to stop and then I keep going. <laughs> Another thing that, you, that people would say about this is part of it has to do with the education level of women back there. They weren't equally educated. Women did not get fair access to education. So because of that, you know, they, they were not supposed to be teachers, and because that's changed, you know, there's various avenues of arguments that have gone on in this passage. 36, or was it f- from you that the word of God came, or you the only one it has reached? So he's saying, you guys think you're so special. You think you're the only ones that have been reached. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or a spirit, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. So he's being quite stern saying, listen, if people say that what I'm saying isn't right, don't ever listen to them. Okay? They ha- I, I'm right. <laughs> and if anyone's disagree with me, they're wrong. What I'm saying to you is from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So if, you, if they do not uh, recognize this, they should be uh, ignored. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So it seems like the way he kind of ends this is, yes, I am saying prophecy is great and it's important and something you should really do, reaching back to chapter 13. But what does he say? Do not forbid speaking in tongues. So um, it would seem forbidding speaking in tongues would also be wrong unless you understand tongues to only be something that was... uh, Important in the first century in order to establish the um, canon of Scripture. So we talked about that more uh, uh, previously, and I'll leave it at that. And then it says in verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. And this is what I would like to talk about just a minute or two, because I think, I don't think we probably have this big debate about, you know, whether we should continue speaking tongues in our services or we don't have this big debate about whether this, that, or the other thing, right? No one's standing up and yelling anytime during the service. I think things are pretty well organized. So our problems are not going to be the same as the Corinthian problems, right? He's solving these problems that they have, and we don't really have these problems. So what do, how can we think about it when we have a service today? I think there's a few things that we need to think about. When it says we need to have all things done decently and in order, and we need to do things with our mind, I think we need to think about this. When you are in part of something in the service, whether that's the Sunday morning service or or even if it's a Sunday school or another situation like that, if you are disorganized because you did not prepare properly, Now, we make mistakes. I don't, I don't want to say perfection. We're all going to make mistakes, right? I mean, that mistakes are mistakes. That's no big deal, okay? We, we make mistakes. I'm not saying perfection. But if the reason that you're not doing your job in the orderly fashion you should is because you didn't put the time in and you didn't care enough to make the situation orderly, 
That's on you. That's on you. So when you agree to do something, whether it's this, you know, Rick and Sharon orderly prepare this every month, right? When you agree to do something like this, they're saying, I am going to get here at the appropriate early amount of time, or if I'm not going to be here, I'm going to find the fill-in, or I'm going to whatever, and this is going to be done in an organized way. And sometimes we get to where we come in, and I'll, I'll pick on us music people because I'm kind of part of that. Sometimes we'll come in and go, yeah, I didn't really practice this. Here's hoping. You know, here's hoping. I think that's not okay. You know, I think that's not okay. Now, there's ex- crazy circumstances. There are extenuating things that happen. We can't, you know, I, I, re- I realize all that. But if we ever get to the point where we think winging things for God is a good idea, you know, we've got a long, you know, sometimes we, we're really nice to each other. We're very forgiving, right? We're very forgiving. And it's good. We should be forgiving. It's not really our job to scold one another, probably. But when I go up and I'm doing something, and if I know I didn't prepare the way I should have, the way I need to think about that was God would not be pleased with my lack of preparation. God would not be pleased with my lack of preparation. Sometimes we come in as a study school teacher, and sometimes we didn't have to prepare because something happened. It was no fault of our own. But sometimes we chose to, you know, just a few more episodes of that Netflix series we're watching, and so we come in Sunday morning, and we're... We're really not ready. And to say, oh, well, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. It's not okay. It's okay. We want to do our best for God. We want to do the best for him that we can. And that means we need to have things orderly and organized. One other point I'd like us to make. At, uh, congregational forms of government, more like Baptist forms of government, we've often adopted the Roberts Rules of Orders. You guys familiar with this, the old Roberts Rule of Orders? When I was in high school, I was on National Honor Society, and one thing we were required to do was have someone who had the office of read the book. Okay? You had to read the guy's book for the Roberts Rules of Orders. I tried to read that book. I gave it a better try than the guy, girl before me, I bet you that. Okay, Robbers of Rules of Orders is a nice thing, and I tried to make everyone follow it. And in Baptist churches, Robert's Rules of Orders became kind of a popular thing with congregational form of government. Okay, let's say one thing: pro Robert's Rules of uh, negative towards Robert's Rules of Orders. There's definitely nothing biblical about having to follow Robert's Rules of Orders. Likely you're all doing it wrong anyway. It's a very big book. If you've got all the rules down there, down, I am, you bless your souls. I mean, it is like a 100-page book of how to run a meeting, okay? So there's nothing gospel about having to run a meeting like that. But when you are having a meeting, there is something a little bit more gospel about that thing needs to be organized. And when someone's talking, interrupting one another, not paying attention, to say, oh, well, it's fine. It's not fine. It's not fine. And whether you run your meeting strictly towards Robert's Rules of Orders or you have some other system, maybe it's a pretty free-flowing. I don't think that matters, but it needs to be done in an orderly way. 
And the moment we allow it to sort of disintegrate into something else, I think we have violated doing all things decently. You know, what were they doing? They were all talking at the same time. At some point, they take turns. Oh, and how many meetings have you been into? None at Sunnyside, of course. We don't do any of this. But how many meetings have you ever been to when the person in running, it's like, oh, no, no, take turns. You know, here, it's your, it's your, you, you have the talking ball. You know, you got to throw the talking ball around so you keep people from talking all over each other. We don't have a talking ball, but you know what I mean. It's like you do it for kids. Don't you do it for kids? Give them the talking ball. Terry, talking ball on mine. Yes. Just pretend. I'm right. Um, so, you know, we need to make sure when we have a meeting that it's done decently in order. And I have never been in them, and I've probably told you this before. You know, every time I hear about the, there's a, there's a guy. He runs the Eighth Day Institute that I talk to you guys about from time to time, and he's an Eastern Orthodox at one time, he was a missionary in Mexico at a Baptist church. So how does a guy who's a missionary at a Baptist church in Mexico become Eastern Orthodox? The church he was a part of, doing the mission work with, had such a nasty split. It split like Three ways. And uh, the way he describes those meetings were bloody. He left not only the Baptist church, he left Protestantism completely. And you know why he ended up at Eastern Orthodox? He was either going to be Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. You know why? This bottom-up system can't possibly work. This bottom-up system where the people are in charge can't possibly be the way we're supposed to do it. There must certainly need to be someone in like a, who's like in charge who can tell everybody and keep everybody from keeping this happening. Have you ever gone to the Wikipedia page on how many Baptist church, types of Baptist churches there are? It's a lot more than the Catholic Wikipedia page. And so because of this nasty split he was a part of, he left Protestantism and he goes in Eastern Orthodox Church now. That church violated the, with decency and order to the nth degree. And I hope we, I doubt we'll ever get quite that crazy, but we need to make sure when we are conducting ourselves, we are conducting ourselves in a proper way. So those are a few things I want you to think about. As we think about that, what's our motivation? How, how are we able to do this? You know, how can we get along? We're so different. You know, we're different ages, and we think differently. When we're building a church, and we're so different, what do we have to have? Christ is our cornerstone, right? We sang cornerstone, we'll sing it again. We have to have Christ as our cornerstone so we can build on something that will keep us decent and in order. Christ is the thing that unifies us, that brings us together. That when we come together, we don't come together with all our individual desires and wants as our primary care, our primary care the thing that we want the most. We come together and say, no, Christ, what Christ wants is what we want. And we want to do it together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can come and 
sir, have to take communion together. Lord, we just thank you that uh, we have this thing that you've passed down to us, that we continue on to remember you and what you've done for us. Lord, I just pray as we try to conduct ourselves decently in order that we would not do it just because, you know, we want to have smooth meetings, but because we want to build on the foundation of Christ. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.